This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Thank you very much, uh, Sonny, and um, <clears throat> good morning, everyone. Uh, so, what I've been charged with this morning is to review the management of congenital diaphragmatic hernia over the last three decades, and it's a particular pleasure to do this because this is an area has has been essentially my career in the 35 years I spent in sick kids. <clears throat> so <clears throat> I'm going to review <clears throat> three decades of management of congenital diaphragmatic hernia and how things have evolved and, and how survival has improved, but perhaps at some cost to, to the patients who actually leave the intensive care unit. <clears throat> so let me start with this man here and to many people in this room, and Peter Lawson would recognize this gentleman instantly. This is Robert E. Gross who was the father of pediatric surgery, he, a remarkable man. He, for several decades, he was the surgeon-in-chief in Boston Children's Hospital. And he had many firsts to his name. He did the first ductus ligation, the first coarctation report, so, uh, uh, repair. So he had many things to his credit. <clears throat> and one of the things he did was pioneer the management of congenital diaphragmatic hernia. And he published this paper in 1946 in the American <coughs> Journal of Diseases of Children, <clears throat> a case series of seven. Uh, repairs of congenital diaphragmatic hernia with 100% survival. Now, no one has ever achieved that sort of survival in the succeeding decades, but of course the law of natural selection worked to his advantage because these were not your postnatal diaphragmatic hernias, these were patients who'd survived for a period of time and that came to surgical attention. It's interesting, the post-op care consisted of a nasogastric tube and some high-flow oxygen and that was about it. So he thought he had solved the problem of congenital diaphragmatic hernia. And to surgeons of his generation, it seemed an eminently <coughs> surgical problem. You had a defect in the diaphragm, usually on the left side. The intestines were up in the uh, left pleural space. <coughs> All you needed to do was a simple operation, pull the guts out, take the liver down, repair the defect, and the lung would expand, and the baby would oxygenate perfectly, and all would be well. <coughs> but of course, as we now know, several decades later, it is uh, de decades later. It is far from a sim simple surgical problem. But certainly, <clears throat> when I started my fellowship in, in sick kids, <clears throat> it was the quintessential neonatal surgical emergency. So the baby was born. The de defect was was diagnosed shortly after birth because prenatal diagnosis didn't exist in those days, and the baby would be rushed to the PICU, looking very blue, <clears throat> followed by the surgeon who was organizing the operating room so the baby would go straight to the OR, repair the defect, and things would be better. Well, they weren't, and it became apparent to us that certainly the very severely affected diaphragmatic hernias were extremely hypoxic when they went into the operating room, and they were even worse when they came out. So serendipitously, what we did was <clears throat> we thought, well, okay, if they're looking so sick and so hypoxic before they have their repair, let's try a new innovative therapy, which in our hands in those days was high-frequency oscillation. So <clears throat> when you put the, a baby on an os oscillator with diaphragmatic hernia, first of all, the CO2 comes down remarkably quickly. You know, the pH rises, the ductal shunting, at least temporarily, seems to improve, and the baby seems to improve somewhat. <clears throat> and it gave us time to think about, well, perhaps we shouldn't go directly to the operating room, but of course, to, to persuade a surgeon that he didn't do an operation, need to do an operation right away was 
somewhat problematic. <clears throat> so <clears throat> with Hiro Sakai, who is one of our Japanese fellows who was with us at the time, we started to do some measurements, and what we did was measured compliance because it was apparent to us that after the defect had been repaired, the, you know, the diaphragm was pulled down, that the closure was frequently very difficult, and the compliance probably <clears throat> was worse after the repair than was before. So you can see in this small case series, which we published in 1987, we showed that <clears throat> if you looked at the compliance, chest wall compliance pre and post, in most cases, it became worse. And a worse compliance translates obviously into higher CO2, and a demand to increase ventilation. <clears throat> so we managed to persuade the surgeon that this was actually not an urgent surgical situation because we could improve the baby at least temporarily and persuaded them that they could do a delayed or deferred surgical repair. So <clears throat> in that period, we developed this delayed surgical repair strategy. And it became apparent to us that this is obviously not a simple surgical problem. This was a problem of maldevelopment, and it was not only maldevelopment of the ipsilateral or frequently left-sided lung, but there was maldevelopment of the pulmonary vascular bed <clears throat> in terms of reduced pulmonary vascular bed, high pulmonary vascular resistance, which was responsible for the, for the right-to-left shunting. So <clears throat> it's a developmental problem with no simple or urgent surgical solution. So in the 1980s to the 1990s, we were in an era of rescue therapies and preoperative stabilization. In our hands, it was use, the use of high-frequency oscillatory ventilation. <clears throat> in many other centers, the uh, rescue therapy was to go to extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. Uh, and, and we felt perhaps that uh, we could manage these babies well without having to resort to ECMO. <clears throat> so in order to try and prove that or disprove that, we combined with Jay Wilson, who is a very eminent uh, pediatric surgeon in Boston Children's, who has a lifelong interest and experience with congenital diaphragmatic hernia, and together with Kenny Azaro, who was uh, a fellow, a surgical fellow with Bob Filler, we did this comparative study of uh, outcome between Boston and Toronto. And of course, they were using ACMO, we were using HFO. <clears throat> and their practice was somewhat different because all our babies with diaphragmatic hernias were de novo diaphragmatic hernias, whereas in Boston they inherited some second-hand repairs that had not turned out well and been transferred in for ECMO therapy. But when we looked retrospectively at over 200 in our institution and almost 200 at Boston Children's, you know, the overall survival was pretty poor, but essentially the same. You know, we're talking about 55% versus 53% survival. <clears throat> so our rescue therapy was HFO. Their evolution of therapies was actually one from using ECMO with conventional ventilation <clears throat> and preoperative stabilization to, in the last era of their uh, retrospective review in 91 to 94, they had got the message that they needed to change ventilation practice, that, that perhaps reducing the peak inspiratory pressure and not aiming to reverse the ductal shunting by hyperventilation was the way to go. And unfortunately, we were, well, I was a bit slow to pick up on this because <clears throat> we had been using HFOV very frequently in the, in the severely affected diaphragms, but we were using it with a high mean airway pressure. <clears throat> and the penny really dropped when we did a post-mortem review of the non-surviving diaphragmatic hernias. So in that series of 223 babies, 
There were 68 uh, autopsies done uh, with autopsy information. And you can see this is the typical picture we saw in a, a non-surviving diaphragmatic hernia. This is the ipsilateral lung with a very abnormal architecture, which is what you would expect in, in a severely affected baby. But look at the destructive uh, things that we produce with mechanical ventilation on the uh, contralateral lung. So all this pink stuff here is hyaline membrane formation. All this you know, stuff here is, is neutrophil infiltration. So this is classic ventilator-induced lung injury. So clearly, <coughs> we were doing something not very smart. And if you put it all together in these 68 infants, the, the, in, the incidence and the types of coronary barotrauma were very, very evident. <coughs> so we clearly had to change our practice. And so we got the message. <coughs> At the time, we were using pressure-limited ventilation, bring the airway pressures down, stop focusing and, 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 and you know, worrying about uh, the ductal saturation, <coughs> especially the post-ductal saturation, because it's rather meaningless. <coughs> reducing the peak inspiratory pressure to less than 25 on conventional, but using HFO in a different way than we were using it in other forms of neonatal lung disease. In other words, not going for an aggressive recruitment strategy using low mean air pressure HFOV, and by low I mean something in the range of 12 to 14 centimeters of water. The use of ECMO in our institution was very infrequent, <coughs> but other institutions they adopt the philosophy that you know, no baby can die with diaphragmatic hernia without at least one ECMO run. Uh, and <clears throat> we felt that we, we, when they're very severely affected infants, perhaps this was not in their best interest. But at the time, <clears throat> also, there was appearing on the horizon a, an attempt at prenatal intervention. <clears throat> so the big uh, push from 2000 onwards was trying to identify the severe forms of congenital diaphragmatic hernia, because we all know there are some babies who are mildly affected, and then there are some babies who are severely hypoxic right from the time of birth, and there seems to be nothing you can do about it, about it except perhaps put them on ECMO, and perhaps not, that is not the right thing to do. <clears throat> so we had a rich uh, source of data on diaphragmatic hernia from the CDH registry, which is run by Kevin Lally in Houston, <clears throat> and to date now there are over 6,000 patients in this data registry. And in terms of postnatal identifiers of severely severe forms of congenital diaphragmatic hernia, it seems that the five-minute APCAR and the birth weight consistently appear to be reliable predictors of the severe forms. And perhaps we should use this data <clears throat> more carefully in selecting babies where uh, ECMO support may be uh, indicated. In an era <clears throat> when we have changed our ventilation practices to what's called, now called gentle ventilation, does ECMO actually improve the outcome? An outcome, I remind you, is survival plus you know, the attended morbidities. So if you look at the ELSA registry data from congenital diaphragmatic hernia, overall survival, 51%. Pretty poor when you compare that with with meconium aspiration, which is over 95% survival. <clears throat> and the long-term morbidity absolutely is there, and depends how carefully you want to look for it, but certainly neurological deficits, chronic lung disease, gastroesophageal reflux, and skeletal, musculoskeletal abnormalities. <clears throat> These severely affected forms of CDH babies were rescued with therapy, with ecmotherapy. <clears throat> there is a significant and, and perhaps not widely recognized morbidity. 
This is data from, uh, from the UK. Larish Academian put this together. <coughs> and this is all ECMO babies in, in the UK where ECMO therapy was used. It was a total of 73. And this is only a relatively limited follow-up. <coughs> so we're only following these babies up to about a year of age. But you can see in this 73 babies that went on ECMO, first of all, the survival was pretty poor. Uh, and the number of al alive is about down to about 50%. <coughs> but then when you follow these out, neurodevelopmental abnormalities and, and musculoskeletal and other abnormalities. <coughs> so how do we make progress and, and improve uh, morbidity? <coughs> well, when I wrote this paper several years ago, I advanced the thesis that CDH was a cardiorespiratory disease. And we need to look at things like pulmonary vasodilator therapy, but we also need to use echo to assess the effect on, of uh, pulmonary vasodilator, vasodilator therapy on right ventricular function and, and find out the status of the ductus and perhaps use prostaglandins to maintain ductal patency. And finally, that the, <coughs> the current intervention that's being studied is a, a prenatal intervention where <coughs> you can try to predict the severely affected uh, babies before birth and use the <coughs> ratio of lung to, uh, to head ratio to predict severely affected infants. And Jan de Prest, who's a fetal medicine specialist from Belgium, has pioneered this. It's a very clever technique to actually occlude the trachea and allow the lung to expand <coughs> and, and uses the LHR to identify severely affected babies and claims an overall survival of 50%. And this is how they do it with, with prenatal ultrasound. So finally, <clears throat> where are we now? I think we're in an era of prenatal diagnosis. Most of these are diagnosed prenatally now. We use APGAR scores to identify high-risk patients, <clears throat> keep the airway pressures down <clears throat> with conventional ventilation, the uh, use of HFOV with low mean airway pressures, <clears throat> target the preductal saturation, and don't use hyperventilation, delayed surgery, use of cardiac echo to assess the PA pressure and status of the ductus, ECMO for selected patients uh, and expect an increase in morbidity and length of stay. And finally, the future will we be able to improve that survival to over 80%? I'm not sure, but I think the postnatal interventions are not going to get us there. And I think perhaps the most likely uh, intervention will be a prenatal therapy intervention. So thank you very much for your attention. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.